Well, good morning, everybody. Morning on online, or if you're listening later. Thank you so much for joining us today. There aren't many announcements. I just want to encourage you to continue on uh, in the Bible reading plan that we have that's on the website. Also continue to look for updates from us about when we will be gathering again together. Um, We miss you and thank you for joining us in this way. I'm going to pray and then we're going to get started. Father, we do just thank you so much for who you are. You are our God. We thank you that you have made a way for us to be with you. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us today as we look at Leviticus. It's hard to put everything together. It's hard to understand. We just admit that. This world can be difficult to understand and put together, and we admit that. And we just need your help. And we're so thankful that you are willing to come to us and speak to us and help us. So do that today, in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have been following along with us in our Through the Bible in a Year plan, right after the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you may have lost a bit of your Bible reading steam. Exciting stories since the start of Genesis through the triumph of God over the gods of Egypt suddenly turned into construction work, architecture, laws, cleansings, rituals. And it got weirder and weirder as it went, even a bit gross and gory as we continue to read Leviticus. But I want to encourage you to keep reading. If you haven't started reading with us, you can still start. Either spend a few days catching up, maybe this afternoon, or just start right where we are at today. And in our plan today, we were at Leviticus chapter 5 through 7 and Psalm 31. One neat thing about this plan is even though you're reading through different parts of the Bible, there is a psalm every day. But be encouraged, January 1st is not the ordained, divinely ordained time to start reading the Bible through. You can start now or you can just pick up where we are. And if you've been reading but you're way behind, you're getting a little bit bored, I just want to encourage you not to give up, but to keep reading. You may be thinking, why? Why bother reading the whole Bible all the way through? We just want to get to Jesus. We just want to be told what to do as long as it's New Testament things to do. But the problem is when we try to kick out parts of the Bible from our lives and only read our favorite passages or only the chapters that we think might be relevant to our day-to-day, we miss so much about who God is and the story that God has been weaving in human history by His Word and in His actions. And so, I want you to know that Leviticus we need. We need it more than our favorite news media or social media feeds. It's an odd book. But it's a part of the scriptures that we say we trust and that was spoken by the God we all say we love. 
The God of the Gospel of John is the God of Leviticus, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, spoke these words. So, I want to spend this morning overviewing a few themes in this book that I hope will encourage and help you as you continue to read through it this week. And I guarantee you that I'm not going to answer all of your questions. And I am a very much novice when it comes to this book. But by God's grace, I really hope that you will be helped. One of the wildest themes in Leviticus that is easy to miss with all the other unusual things in it is that it comes at us almost entirely with the voice of God spoken directly to his people. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by Him. But this book has very little narrative, very little story in it about what is God is doing in and with His people and has a ton of what God has to say directly to His people. So Leviticus is permeated by the voice of God. One scholar put it this way, This book of 27 chapters contains more direct speech by God Himself than any other book of the Bible, and it is placed at the heart of the Torah, or Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, which forms the foundation for all of Scripture. And we see this, look at the very first verse in chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, and he just goes on. He goes on and on for a while. Again, in chapter 4, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying... And then he keeps talking. His voice continues. And so that cycle picks up again and again as you read this book through all 27 chapters. Occasionally, you get something slightly different. You'll get something like, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying... You see that in chapter 11, 1 to 2. So God speaks directly to his people through his representatives, Moses and Aaron. So if you want something practical right now to derive from that, it is listen. Listen to what God says. God has spoken and he wants your and my attention. Surprisingly, the title of the book itself actually is not the original Hebrew name for the book. The original name was a Hebrew word that I'm not going to pronounce, but it meant, and he called. And he called. Which was taken from the very first verse where God called Moses and spoke to him. So this third book of the Bible reminds us that God is a God who calls his people and speaks to his people. He's not silent. He doesn't leave us to ourselves on our own. He doesn't call us and then tell us and then not tell us who we are, not tell us what to do. Our ears might be plugged. Our hearts might be hard or more interested in a bunch of other things. But God speaks and his voice is the most significant voice in our lives. It's more valuable than the voice of our friends, the voice of our political leaders, the voice of sermons, pastors the words of news media, the voice in your head, yourself, 
Leviticus reminds us that God calls out to us with His voice in the Scriptures. So the question is, are you listening? Will you listen to God's voice? Secondly, as you read Leviticus, remember where you are at in the biblical story. This ancient book is coming from a particular time and a particular place in history. It's not like other books of the Bible that we might jump or, or that might jump out of chronological order. It picks up right after what we just finished reading in Exodus. And it introduces more detail to us around another theme in this book. And really one of the biggest themes in the whole Bible. The presence of God. Where God dwells. Verse 1 tells us specifically that this book takes place with God calling to Moses and speaking to him, in verse 1, from the tent of meeting. That is the tabernacle. That is the place where God now dwells with his people. It's what we just finished seeing in Exodus 40, where God told Moses to, quote, erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting in chapter 40, verse 2 of Exodus. And then we see, as we read that chapter, that God did what God said and God showed up. Exodus ends with the glory of God filling the tabernacle with His presence. And Moses being unable, not able, to enter. 40, 34-35 Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So there are few themes more important in the whole Bible than the presence of God with His people. Remember, the Scripture began with God making men and women in His image and dwelling with them in sacred space, the garden of His presence. God was with His people without any barriers. But Adam sinned. And this now unholy couple were driven out from the garden and restricted from entering it and accessing the tree of life and being with their holy, good God. But God does not reject them entirely. He calls out to them. He speaks to them, even though they are sinners, and He makes promises to them. And we've seen this as we've been reading the first few books of the Bible, how God calls out to specific sinful people like Eve, Noah, Abraham, and Moses. And He makes promises to them that He will make a people for Himself. He will bless them and He will be with them. But the barriers to His presence, like the flaming sword at the garden, are still there because God is holy and people left to themselves are not holy. So we have God's voice, God's presence, and now God's Holiness. This theme of God's holiness is pervasive. And it's not so much as explained, but assumed that God is and that God is holy. Notice how God doesn't explain His existence to us. He doesn't do it in the whole Bible. He doesn't do it here in Leviticus. He just simply repeats it. I am the Lord. I am the Lord, your God. I am. God says this many times in the book when He's telling His people to do various things. He'll end a command and a call for obedience with, I am the Lord. Period. 
Don't be, unjust. Don't be unjust. I am the Lord. Don't eat unclean things. I am the Lord. Don't commit sexual sin. I am the Lord. Treat the stranger in your land like yourself. I am the Lord. Over and over again, God follows up a command of who He wants His people to be with the reality of His existence and His identity as God. He doesn't give us 75 reasons for why He commanded what He commanded in order to explain Himself to make sure that you and I are okay with what He said. He's not looking for our agreement with Him before our obedience to Him. He's kind of like the parent who tells their kiddos to do something. The child says, why? The parents say, because I said so. But not really. Because in this case, even though God says, because I said so, God also says, because I simply am. Parents aren't eternal and parents like me can be wrong. But God is uncreated. And all that He is and all that He says is good. He is, He exists. In other words, He is holy. Look at Leviticus 20, 26 as an example of this. You shall be holy to Me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be Mine. So holy means separate, set apart, pure. It is primarily what God wants His people to know about Him in Leviticus. Holiness is intrinsic to who He is as God and it defines every other attribute of His, like love, mercy, compassion, and justice. And it defines it so much so that one could call Him the God of holy love, the God of holy compassion, the God of holy justice, the God of holy mercy, etc. Theologian John Webster wrote, God is holy, and therefore holiness characterizes all God's ways. In all that He does, He is holy, and can no more not be holy than He cannot be God. As all God's ways are merciful and true, as all His ways are the exercise of His omnipotence, so all God's ways are holy. Holiness pervades all God's works. The problem with holiness is we want to be able to come up with a cute definition. But a big part of it is that it cannot be packaged. God's holiness busts through our categories. He's uncontainable. He doesn't fit inside a sentence, but he gives us clues. And using this particular verse, chapter 20, verse 26, we see two aspects of his holiness. In the separateness of God from us and the presence of God with us. We see that through the whole book, that God is separate and that He makes clear to His people Israel that He is the, transi- the transcendent God over and above them. And that His holiness calls His people to be holy. Also, separate, unique, distinct from those who worship other gods and live a different way of life. So this theme of separateness, distinction. But at the same time, even in this verse, we see that the holiness of God is also about the nearness of God and that He is the holy God who desires to be with His people. Notice at the end of the verse that you should be mine. 
Or take, for example, when God is issuing commands, like we mentioned before, he'll follow up a command with not only I am the Lord, but sometimes he'll switch it up and he'll say, I am the Lord, your God. So we have both the separateness from his, both separateness from his people, by which God is holy, and the witness of God with his people that reveals his holy character. And so this takes us right back to where we've been and where we are now in our Bible reading and gives us a fourth theme, which is all related to all of the others. We see this in Leviticus about God's space, also called sacred space. The problem with God's space is that sinful human beings can't enter it without God making a way for us to enter it. So the glorious weight of pure holiness is too terrible and majestic. We are created, yet fallen and unholy. And because of that, we will die in His presence. We see this very thing come up when actually it switches from just the voice of God to a little story. And we see that when Aaron's sons treat God casually in chapter 10 and do not do what God has commanded in his space and with his objects, God kills them and consumes them with fire. So much of Leviticus is taken up with how to enter and how to remain in God's presence, how to be in his sacred space. And there are various gradations to this, various degrees of it. I saw this one chart where it helped us, it helped me think through it, thinking in concentric circles, moving from the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies all the way through the camp outward. And on the outer rim, you have the camp of the whole company of Israel separated from other nations. So outside of the circle are the other nations where the false gods rule and where the people follow them. Then you have the people of Israel inside the camp. God's people made up. They've been delivered from Egypt. They are now in the camp. They're in their own space. And then inside of that, you have the courtyards with the Levites. Then you have the priests in the holy place. And then the holy of holies in the tabernacle where only the high priest goes once a year to make atonement for the people. And so Leviticus shows us different reasons and ways for how one can get in these or stay in these particular spaces through things like ritual cleansing and sacrifice. And, as you know, it gets pretty detailed. Without getting into all of it, I want to mention a couple of the big categories. There's some overlap, but I've been helped by drawing a distinction between ritual uncleanliness and moral sinfulness. And you'll see both of these as categories throughout Leviticus. Being ritually unclean or getting clean through ritual and moral sinfulness and prohibitions that God gives about certain ways of life. But you might wonder why normal aspects of simply being human as a man or as a woman like, and again, to be blatant and frank, like menstrual cycles, like nocturnal emissions. How can these things that are normal, a part of being human, make you ritually unclean and remove you from various parts of these spaces? 
It's not that these are sinful, but that God is clearly drawing a distinction between what is sacred and what is common. It's not that bodies are gross or that sex is bad, but it is that God is showing them that we just can't be casual. We can't be just casually in various areas of his presence. And so some of these things mentioned in Leviticus that make one ritually impure get associated with death. Some of the things like dead bodies, carcasses that we read about, and how you become unclean if you get in contact with them. And that's because they're opposite to the God of life. And if you think through it, I think we can even see how the fluids of these two bodily discharges that we're speaking of and that Leviticus speaks of would get associated with death or life. And so I think it's important to see that. God is not anti-body, but he's drawing the distinction between creator and creature, and he's showing us that he is the God and fountain of life. On the other hand, there are aspects of moral impurity that either must be covered through atonement or results in a person being removed from sacred space entirely. Unintentional sins, which we read about at the beginning of Leviticus, and general sins that come up, throughout Leviticus, can be atoned for and covered through sacrifice. But it's interesting to note that some of these sins in chapter 18, 19, and 20 were not covered by sacrifice and the sinner was simply cut off from the people of God and even put to death. Sexual sins like incest, adultery, and homosexuality and idolatrous evil and bloodshed like child sacrifice fall into categories throughout those chapters, some of which are called abominations or perversions or that they profane God's name. And so it was these kinds of sins that mimicked the way of life of the people of the other nations who were worshiping false gods and even were using some of those very behaviors as a way to worship the false god. And these things were reasons for why the land we read about in Leviticus vomited God's people out if they were to continue in them and that they would be expelled, that they would be sent off into exile, which we end up seeing later on, if we continue our Bible reading, what happens to the people of God as they begin to commit some of these very sins and that they have to leave the sacred space that God has given them. And God warns them here. He tells them, this is the way that I have for you to live. These are the things that I have for you to do. Some that are ritual, some that are regarding ritual cleanliness, other things that are sinful uh, and need to be covered by sacrifice or that you will die and be removed from. But God in his kindness is showing his people how they might be with him. And he warns them and he tells them of who he is and what he requires. And so one of the things I want us to recognize regarding sacred space is that God is the one who graciously provided a way for his people to be in his presence. One Old Testament scholar wrote, The purpose of the tabernacle was not to keep Israel from God, but to provide a way for the holy God to be with his people. We see this over and over again. We've read about it, how God is going to grab his people out of Egypt. He's going to show that he is famous, that he is the most glorious God in all of creation. He is the God and he will rescue his people and bring them to himself and that he will make a way for them to be with him. So tabernacle 
and presence is a gift of God to His people. The camp was a gift of God of gathering a people for Himself and separating them from all of the other nations of the earth that were enslaved to false gods. And that the promised land was going to be a gift that was going to come. So all that is good news. But, as we know, there's even better news. We are the people of good news. We are the people of the gospel as the story continues to be told. There's better news to come. The blood of animals was not enough for unrestricted and constant access into God's presence. And the presence of God is not to be found in a tabernacle. or in a church building, but that God Himself came as a man in the flesh with a body in the person of Jesus to tabernacle, to dwell with us, to save us from our big sins, from our little sins, from any kind of uncleanliness, because apart from Him, we're sinners. We're unable to save ourselves. And so God comes. God comes and dwells with His people. He comes in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. We see in the Gospels how Jesus, instead of lepers making him unclean, he made them clean. Instead of the touch of a woman with an issue of blood defiling him, he heals her and makes her whole. Instead of a goat with the sins of God's people going out into the scary wilderness that could have been inhabited by demons, Jesus, the shepherd, The sacrifice goes into the wilderness to overcome the temptations of the devil. Instead of avoiding sinners, Jesus draws near to them. He eats with them. He comes to save them. Instead of death for sin, he himself takes the place of death on the cross, dies and rises again to bring us to God. And so Jesus is the epitome of of sacred space in that He is God Himself. He is God for us. He comes to make us sacred space. He comes to indwell us with His Spirit so that we can be called saints, which means holy ones. We can draw near to God because we don't need a strip of land. We don't need a tabernacle. We don't need more sacrifices. We don't need more rituals. We don't need any other representatives other than Jesus who is the person, the place, the sacrifice, the priest that brings us to God. We see this in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 in the New Testament. Verses 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, again, this is the place that would have been restricted from everybody else, except for a high priest. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Moses restricted us restricted, possibly cut off because of sin. But because of Jesus, this writer in Hebrews is calling us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So Jesus has made a way. God has made a way through the work of His Son and by the power of His Holy Spirit to indwell us, to be with us. And as I just continue to think about this as a quick overview of Leviticus, it can be unusual. We, too, live right now in unusual and challenging times on many levels. It might feel a bit like Leviticus in that it's strange. So as you read this book, ask God to take you out of the now not focusing on the do's and don'ts of things like coronavirus or the ins and outs of the presidency, the tasks and duties that fill your day, the busy life in the modern world. But try, as you read this, to enter into this ancient world, to these ancient tasks and duties, and to what God was doing with his people there. And ask God to help you to understand it. Maybe grab a commentary, read a book, watch a few of the Bible Project videos on it, and be reminded that though we may not be doing all these strange, unusual things in Leviticus now, but through Leviticus, God has called us to be a strange and unusual, distinct and different people too in our world and in our nation. So let it remind you of the most important things. God is holy. You and I are sinful, but God has made us holy ones to live in this world according to His ways and with His love, His grace, and His goodness. Remember that we ourselves together have become sacred space as God's people. We, the church, not this building, not any other building, not America, but the church, the people of God, is the place where God Dwells. Our allegiance is to Him. Our agenda is to be guided by His voice, not the countless other voices we hear day after day. And one of the things that we confess, that we believe, is that Jesus is coming again for His people, for you and I, and He will make this entire earth, He'll fill the whole universe, everything, with His unmediated presence in a cured and curseless universe. So let's make this our joint confession and hope. Let's encourage each other in these things because we all need encouragement. Life is not easy, ever or now. We may have some of the same fears, angers, and anxieties as those in the world, as they do, because we're here too. These could revolve around getting coronavirus. These fears, these angers, these anxieties could revolve around getting it. They could revolve around not getting it, but losing your job or your sanity because of restrictions due to it. It could center around socialism or Trumpism. It could be persistent loneliness, depression, pain, maybe the next paycheck. But these fears, angers, and anxieties are not louder than the holiness and the grace of our God who is with us in them. God is for us. Who can be against us? So let's live unusual and strange lives in comparison with those who do not believe or those who believe wrong things, fake things, flat-out false things, or any number of things. This doesn't mean 
to live obnoxious or proud or intentionally odd and awkward. But it does mean that we will live different. It means we can live with unusual honesty by telling the truth in the face of error because Jesus is the truth. We can live with unusual honesty again by confessing our sin, my sin, when we fail because He removes our uncleanliness and our shame. Let us live with unusual courage to speak out boldly confronting unrighteousness in the world and in the church, but with the kind of confrontation that glistens with the unusual grace and forgiveness that we too have reserved because we didn't deserve it also. Let's live with unusual bodies, recognizing that our bodies are God's temple, His sacred space. He gets to define what is best for us, not what our heart says or what the culture says. Let's live with an unusual identity, holding fast to our identity in Christ, distinct from the world and truer than any other identity the world may offer in its place. Finally, let's live with unusual love that is sacrificial, loving our city, brothers and sisters, outcasts, enemies. Jesus has made us holy. So be holy as He is holy because that is who you are by His grace. And you are His. Let's let Hebrews leave us with a benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.